0: Good evening. I invite you to stand. Sometimes it's just good to kind of hit the pause button and draw near to our Savior Jesus this evening. In Christ alone. Sing it from the depth of your heart.
1: In Christ alone. My hope
0: is found.
1: He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone is solid ground. Here, from the earth is storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace,
2: with his.
1: Me home here in the power of. Christ.
0: You may be seated for a moment. We're going to talk, sing about God's amazing grace, how much we need him, and how much we need to lean on him. And invite you, if you'd like to stand, you can. If you want to sit, or if you want to kneel, raise your hands, clap. Just enter into God's presence this evening uh, in spirit and in truth from the depth of your being and worship our great God and King.
1: my cross you lay down your life that I would be set free oh Jesus I sing for all that you've done for me worthy is the lamb who was slain Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was, worthy. was slain. Worthy is the King who the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. This is amazing grace. This is a unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would
0: we thank you for your amazing grace we thank you that we can press into you jesus and it's because of you that we have life that we have reason to live we thank you that even though you are a holy awesome indescribable unapproachable god from the standpoint that we are sinners because of Jesus we are no longer that way and so we thank you that we can come into your holy presence we can worship you for you are good you are peace you are joy you are our life you are good you are
1: good when there's nothing good in me you are love. You are love, our display for all to see. You are light, you are light. When the darkness closes in, you are hope, you are hope. You have covered all my sin. You are peace, you are peace. You are true, you are true, even in my wandering. You are joy, you are joy. That letting go. Oh, I'm running right to your arms, I'm running right to your arms, the riches of your love will always be enough, nothing comes. Of the world forever, rain. I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will always be love. Nothing compares to your embrace, light of the world. Jesus, Jesus, my heart will sing no other name. Jesus, Jesus, I'm running to Your arms. I'm running to Your arms. The riches of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace, light of the world forever.
0: press into you to get plugged in to where you are to be refreshed by your grace to be refreshed by your goodness and your peace and your love for us Lord that is our prayer as we just sung that we need you we need you every hour every moment of the day For without You, we can do nothing. But with You, we are victorious. We are more than conquerors. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we stand in Your presence, not as defeated people, but we stand in Your presence knowing who our God is and proclaiming our faith and our trust in You. Proclaiming Your goodness. Proclaiming that You are our Creator. We are the sheep of your pasture, and we delight ourselves in you. For you're our one defense. You're our
1: righteousness. Oh God, how we need.
2: Well, if you would open up your Bibles to John chapter fifteen, as we continue journey through God's Word, I was mapping things out, and Lord willing, we're going to be—I think—we're going to be in Revelation in twenty twenty-four, if we're still here <laughs> working on it. We're going to finish John, and then, and then from John, we'll have done all the Gospels and and First and Second Corinthians, and doing Acts on Sunday. So we'll be in Galatians after this. Looking forward to that. Something else we're looking forward to is our uh, trip to Israel. I'm getting excited about it. Things are really rolling up. I'm super excited because we have 20 people on an uh, interest list that are saying, yeah, we're going to go and we're going to get geared up for it, which is way more than what I thought we were going to be at at this point. So if you're interested in that, please check it out. Uh, check out the video. Uh, this is something that, that we you want to get plugged in on. Part of the reason why I'm so interested in taking people to Israel is because the Word of God becomes multidimensional when you've seen it in person. And so tonight we're going to be talking about something that is very normal in the land of of Israel, especially around Jerusalem and the Galilee. And so when we use these phrases, it's really hard from our westernized, 2,000 years later idea to visualize what Jesus is talking about, especially when he talks about the vine, the vine dresser, and these things that are there. When you got to imagine, when Jesus would teach, he would teach while he walked. He would teach as they would journey from one place to another, and he used very practical things that were around. Uh, it was a lot of object lessons with the disciples. And, you know, you've you got to love the style uh, because Jesus used ordinary people. He didn't pick scholars or guys with, you know, PhDs or MDs or MDfs or whatever numbers you want to, letters you want to give them. These were fishermen. These were tax collectors. These were common people. And so he would walk and teach, as was the rabbinical tradition, and be able to use normal things that were around them. And within that, one of the things that we're going to key on tonight is this this idea where he uses the idea of a vineyard in order to be able to teach what it really means to be connected. In Israel, when you travel, especially when you go up into the northern section and you're traveling around in the Golan Heights especially, but as you go around, it's very hilly and is full of draws, and they have a lot of terraced gardens and vineyards. So everything is terraced, and then the vineyards would be in there. And wine, grape juice, wine, was an essential item. It was part of what they would drink on a regular basis, both for celebration but also just for daily necessity so there was a lot of vineyards that were around within this and you would see these terraced areas Israel is amazing it has great vineyards it was designed by God to be a great place for growing these things in fact Israel was a land that would flourish with agriculture there was a time when you and when you think about Israel you think about like arid desert well that's only in the south in the in in the Judea area but in the north it was a land that that was blessed by God. In fact, Deuteronomy 125 talks about when Israel would go in the land and they would take some of the things to bring back as they were getting ready to go in the land. It says, then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought us back a report and said, it is a good land which the Lord our God has a, is about to give us. It would sustain the, the three to four million people that would be coming into this land. Today, Israel has done a phenomenal job. In replanting the, the trees and, and, and the microculture that is in there. And in fact, as you tour Israel, one of the things that you'll see is these purple pipes that run all along the road. Why? Because they are number one in the world in desalinization and water reclamation. Why? Because in the Middle East, the one who has water has life. And so they have this. All throughout the land. And and the, the banana, if you remember from traveling and on the bus, and you see all the banana trees that were all covered with the sacks and, and the fruit and all of these things. Well, how does this translate to what Jesus teaches? Tonight, he's going to teach that he is the true vine. The vine that encourages the followers to remain in union with him. And as long as you remain in union with him, you're going to produce fruit. Within that. Now, when did he have this conversation? Well, we last left Jesus leaving the upper room with the disciples. Judas had separated himself. They've had the Last Supper. They've had the washing of the feet. He's gone through all the teaching that he did in the upper room discourse. And now they're leaving the upper room. And again, those of you that have been to Israel, if you remember coming out that that south side, the southern steps, walking through, you could walk across the city streets, and then you can go down the Kidron Valley and then you can come up the other side to what? Garden of Gethsemane, which is very visible from that east side wall. So Jesus was doing, and it was late at night, and it was dark, and He's walking with His disciples to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where He was going to go and pray. And as He's walking, He's talking. So picture yourself. It's late at night. It's dark. You know, maybe 10 o'clock, 10.30-ish. Moon's out. Stars are out. It's crisp. It's cool. You're walking through these streets. Possibly some hubbub that was going on because the, the, the feast is over and people are on their way home and he has the conversation with the disciples. And the point of the conversation is this to encourage the disciples to remain and not to abandon their faith. Why? Because life is about to get really, really hard. And when life gets really, really hard, we don't want to persevere. We want to quit. When difficulties come, come, we, we want to bail out. And He's walking with His disciples knowing that in a short period of time the garrison of Roman soldiers up to 600 would come out of the East Gate from the Antonio Fortress cross that Kidron Valley led by who? Judas. And they would take Him into custody. That's the setting for this conversation. That He knows, and He knows it's late. The disciples, as we'll read later, not tonight, but later on down the line, will fall asleep. Why? Because they're tired. And they'll be scared. Why? Because the soldiers are there. This is all going on in this backdrop. As Jesus has in His mind the, the concept of stay connected. Do not quit. You need to persevere within this. And so we pick up in verses 1 through 6 of John 15 as Jesus begins this conversation. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it'll bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they burn. We'll pause there for a minute because one of the things that Jesus does, and he states it twice, is for the disciples to abide or to remain in him, connected with him. Why did he say it twice? (laughs) Because they needed to hear it. Because they're dumb. They don't get it. It's late. They got a full belly. But he starts out and he uses as John would account the seventh statement of I am's that Jesus would say, Ego a me, using the name of God. So he declares himself I am, ego a me, the name of God, declaring his deity, identifying with God, and as God he is the true vine within this. He's the and with within vineyards you would have and you've seen them, if you go to the Willamette Valley, you'll see them. they have the the trunks that go up and then all the branches stretch out across and they'll stretch across these these wires as as they go through and so as the trunk is the source, then the branches would branch off and and produce other branches and would produce the fruit. So in this, the sun is the true vine. the main part of the grapevine that supports all the branches. And the father in this account is the vine dresser. He's the owner of the field. He is the one that goes through and prunes and sorts and makes sure that the the vineyard is clean. In fact, the vine dresser is the one that purifies the vineyard. He's the one that goes through and finds the branches that are no longer connected, that have died off, and not producing any fruit and removing them. Now, again, we got to go back to the pictures that are used to us in Scripture. Israel began as God's vineyard. It was God's intent that the gospel would come through Israel to the Gentiles. They were originally to be the main source of the gospel presentation within this, but they failed. They were supposed to be the vineyard of God as they would come into the promised land, and from the center of Israel, the gospel would go forward to all the nations. They were to be a light unto the Gentiles. Do you remember reading that. But did they fail? Miserably. God gave them a shot, and they blew it. In fact, we read about it in Isaiah chapter five verses one through five about God's vineyard. It's rather long, but it, you can follow along. It says, "Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it, no, he expected it to produce good grapes." But it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled to ground. I will lay waste and it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it for the vineyard of the Lord of the host is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. And thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So Isaiah prophesied the condition of Israel and what's going to happen. Why? Because they rebelled. Did God give Israel every chance that they could ever have to be successful? More than once? Absolutely. But they kept rejecting the vineyard owner. And so God said, fine, what you're producing isn't any good, so I'm going to wipe it out. 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. The land of Israel became barren. it was trampled under and it lay desolate. Did God give up on his people? No. Nope. No. Nope. but he brought another vine. It wouldn't be Israel, it would be Jesus. Jesus would be the vine. Does the Father have the divine prerogative to do what he wishes with the vineyard? Yes, it's his vineyard. It's his. Is it wrong for him, for him to have an explanation or expectation when he plants the vineyard, when he does all the work and the preparation and gets the stones out and puts the water in and the watchtower to watch it? Is it wrong for him after done, doing everything to expect good fruit? No. But the vines produced bad fruit. Is it wrong for the owner to clean it, to trim it? No. No. Pruning is a good thing. And so as the vine dresser, he lovingly deals with the branches in order for them to produce good fruit. Notice when we read earlier, he removes the dead ones that do nothing. But then the living ones are pruned. You say, well, I don't like to be pruned. Pruning hurts. But it's there to produce more. And, and, and to get you to a place to be able to produce better fruit. But God saw the lack of the fruit of Israel, and he determined that a better vine needed to be produced, and that would be Jesus. It's interesting, it's the, it's the branch that doesn't produce fruit that is removed. I think about this often, in, in, in that, and a lot of people get hung up on this. Understand this. It's the branch that doesn't produce fruit that is removed. There's a lot of people that will identify as a Christian. But are they? How do you know if someone's really a Christian? What should you look for? If you identify as a Christian, does that make you a Christian? No. Because by definition of the name, you're Christ-like. You should produce fruit. If you identify as a Christian and there's no spiritual fruit, you're not a Christian. And, and within this, we've got to understand, it's a judgment against the people that self-identify a certain way, but really aren't who they say they are. God would deal with this in the church of Sardis. Revelation chapter 3 one says this, To the angel of the church in Sardis, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're really dead. You have a name that pretends to be alive, but you're really dead. There is, there's, there's no works. Judas was a disciple. Did he bear fruit? No. So what did Jesus do? Had them removed. Didn't produce fruit. Had them removed. It's interesting that that this vine dresser would take the branches that are without fruit, take them away. Because the implication is they're, they're not connected. They've lost their connection. Therefore, they don't produce any fruit. And so within this, if you are a true Christian, you will produce fruit. If you're not a true ch- Christian, you won't produce fruit. The other aspect I think about this is important if we understand this parable of the vine dresser. It is the job of the cutting and the dressing of the father. It is not the job of the cutting and the dressing of the church. The other vines are not cutting off the other vines, are they? There's only one that is actually making the separation. And what does that tell us? Only God knows the heart. Only God knows those that which can produce fruit and those that which cannot. I have a buddy that transplanted a, a tree. And, and, and in transplanting this tree, he moved this tree and put this tree into the ground and it did nothing for four years. Nothing. Not a leaf, not a nothing. So he determined after four years, I think I've waited long enough, So, it it came springtime and it came time to be able to do something. He goes out to that tree. Guess what he found? He found a leaf. There was life in it, but it took a long time for it to show up. And I don't know, maybe he had a conversation with that tree and said, Look, this is your last bit. (laughs) You're about to go. I don't know. But it ended up producing leaves and ended up producing apples within them. So it's it's God's job to remove, to to be able to do the work. And I think it's an important point that God is the one that, that does the pruning and the cutting and the removing. And the other point that I think is important to understand this, it's not the branch's choice to be cut off. It's the Father's. The branch doesn't make a decision for itself. It's the Father's. Which tells us one of the things that's this, that, that we've got to understand that God is the one that judges us even in our own hearts. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our own hearts within us. So we need to leave the pruning and the cleaning and all of that to God. But what about this this pruning business of the branches that produce fruit? in my mind if it's producing fruit leave it alone but again I learned a lesson that it's important and you guys most of you guys know more about plants than I do I do grass it's green I cut it I'm good but I got some apple trees and I was told you need to you need to prune your apple trees every year you need to cut them back especially those things that like stick straight up that and, and to be able to do that and do it in winter when the sap's done and be able to produce. If you want better fruit and more fruit within this. To be able to produce it to, in such a way that it produces a better fruit. Will God prune our life? Absolutely he will. Now divine pruning is never pleasurable. When God starts cutting away parts that are unproductive. You go, well, wait a minute, God, I need that. Oh, no, you don't. It's producing bad fruit, or it's not producing any fruit. So we're just going to cut it off. But, 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 no, no buts. But I need it. No, you don't. you got to trust the vine dresser, the God that created you, that has a plan for you, that will prune your life to be able to get you to produce more fruit. And it's the act of the loving father that does that. The vineyard owner is looking for the best. And sometimes less is more. Sometimes there's a blessed subtraction. In Hebrews 12.10 it says, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, note, so that we may share in his holiness, have you ever been pruned by God? Was it fun? Nope. But as you look in the rearview mirror and you say, God, that worked out pretty good. Thank you. Because God's looking for that good fruit. So, how does this work? Well, in verses 3 and 4, you have to abide. Notice how he says, you are already clean in the word which I have spoken. Do you abide in me and I in you. And the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. So, a lot of people worry about being cut off from God. Have I sinned so much? Have I committed a sin that God's going to cut me off? Have I fallen into this pleasure? No. No, because if you're connected to the vine, there is a reciprocal relationship between the Father and the Son and you, and you are connected. And Jesus is speaking about remaining connected. Remember the context. The context is we are about to go to Gethsemane and you're going to be pruned. But there's only one that got cut off and he wasn't producing any fruit and his name was Judas. How do we know that? Notice the verbal clue that he gives in there in verse three. Remember when Peter talked about getting his feet washed? He says, wash all of me. And Jesus said, you that have been washed don't need to be washed again except for your feet. You're all clean, but one of you. But one of you. Jesus reiterates that here in verse 3. He says, you're all clean because of the word that I spoke to you. Because of the words and the work of Jesus. It's assurance to them. Please do not read into this passage in John 15 that your eternal security is at stake. It is not. It is not at all. And, and you know that by the fruit, by the, the reciprocal relationship with it. Will God prune you? Yes. Will it cut off believers? Absolutely not. Why? Because you've already been made clean. And that is in the perfect tense. And so within this, the disciples needed to continue as a faithful community. So then who is he talking about also being cut off? The Jews. The Jews would be cut off. Not just Judas, but the Jews. Why? Because they're going to reject him. The same ones that's, that said Hosanna on Sunday, you'll crucify crucified on Friday. And so God said, fine, you're going to be cut off. and, and, and Because you're not producing any fruit unto repentance. Now, within this, we've got to understand that God calls us to be faithful the The unclean are the ones that would give lip service and become apostates. And in John's day he would declare them in his first letter in in first John chapter two, nineteen, he says this, and they went out from us, note, but they were not really of us. In other words, they were never connected. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, security. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. They were in proximity, but there was never a reciprocal relationship. And Jesus speaks encouragement to the disciples in an imperative. Remain in me. Abide in me. In the same way, what does he mean by abide? In the same way that the Father and the Son have an abiding relationship, inseparable It's the same way that believers should abide in Christ and thereby being inseparable within that place. You are looking at that love relationship. I think it's interesting when we we look at relationships, so many times we look at the line and we say, okay, how close can I get to that line before I cross that line? Right? Is that really abiding? No. What we should be doing is saying, crossing that line is going to damage my relationship. I want to stay as far away. I want to be as utterly connected as I can. I want as much of Jesus flowing through me, as much of the Holy Spirit flowing through me as possible. Unrestricted within that. But the failure to receive Jesus or abide in Jesus is going to produce a fruitlessness within this. But abiding in Jesus empowers, as Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things, how? Through Him who, what? Strengthens me. That's the abiding. That's the flow of the Holy Spirit working in and through you. You know, we, we make a big deal about coming to church and reading your Bible and being in prayer, but those are all the connection points by which you abide. You know this, when you stop coming to church, when you stop reading your Bible, you stop praying, what happens? You spiritually start drying up. And then you look at the end of your life, and at the end of the day, there's no fruit. So what does God do? He's going to cut the, some things off, right? Shorten the part that's connected, so that the nurturing can continue within this. And Jesus wants His disciples to understand that they're to continue with him and have a life that glorifies God. And that fruit is that is that prayer and that union with God. You want to glorify God, live like Jesus. You want to glorify God, pray like Jesus. Love like Jesus. In fact, John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6 is not really the Lord's Prayer. That's a model of prayer. John 17 really is the Lord's Prayer. In John 17, we are given a window into Jesus having a conversation with his Father. And that love relationship. And Jesus modeled obedience and discipleship and love for others like none other. And a witness to the world. You want to make God smile? Love other people. You want to make God smile? Obey him. You want to make God smile and produce good fruit? Then do what God has called you to do in a manner that makes him smile and, and honors him. The son lived to honor his father. We should live that same way. And I can tell you, when you function the way that God's created you, you'll be happy. But if you try to live in both worlds, not going to be happy. Because you're not going to experience that abiding relationship with God. In 5 and 6, he again, he reiterates, I'm the vine, you're the branches, I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Notice what 6 says, though. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Fire is always a picture of judgment. And failure to, to remain in that abiding relationship ends up with a, not only a fruitless life, but a life that's judged. In Deuteronomy chapter thirty two, twenty two, God rained down fire on the on Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol, and consumes the earth, and it yields, and sets on fire the fountains of the mountains. God'll judge. I just don't want to be on that side. I want I would rather honor him. And so we need to to live in a life that that is fruitful, that glorifies God. So think about your life. If you were to do a, a, a fruit test, and if you were to take a look at the measure by which you love other people as as that fruit, there's a lot of other fruit, but just that simple one. What kind of fruit are you producing? How are you loving others? Is it the way that Christ has loved you? And and that life that glorifies God. Look at verses as we go on to 7 through 11. It says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy be made full. So we start out with this whole thing. and We say, OK, Gary, that's good. Abide. I get it. How do I really abide? How do I really Stay connected. Want to know the the number one way? It's not by works. It's through prayer. What is prayer? The constant communion and conversation that you have with God. You want to abide. Be in a constant conversation with God. The constant God-awareness. Paul would say in Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Well, I can't close my eyes while I'm driving. Don't do that. But it's the constant awareness of a conversation that at any time you are in this constant state as if if God is sitting right next to you, if Jesus is sitting right next to you, you can turn and have that constant conversation. You don't have to change mindsets, location, or anything. It is a constant state of conversation to abide, to be in that place. If you are in that constant state of conversation, he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Why? Because you're in communion with God. The fruitful prayer life and the way to unlock this, this prayer life really is, Keeping Jesus as your source and keeping the Word of God abiding in you. Let's see, if everything that I'm thinking comes from Christ and I got the Word of God sourced in my life, then are my prayers going to be in alignment with the Father's will? Most likely, yes. Why? Because you're Christocentric. Fancy word. Christ centered. So your conversation is going to be that way. Not going to be self-centered. It, it, you're, it means that you're fundamentally committed to Jesus. And the Word of God drives your prayer life. And your purposes are the purposes to glorify the Father. And so when you pray, much like the model of prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, holy be your name, thy will be done on earth, what? As it is in heaven. That's the model prayer. So you're looking heavenly for that for that will to be done on earth. And Jesus glorified God through his life, his burial, the resurrection by obeying him. In fact, in John seventeen four to five, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had, which you, you had before the world. Want to glorify God? Do things. Love God. Love others. You do that. You'll give God glory. Why? Because people are going to see that love. And and when you experience that love and that relationship, it gives to you joy. Verses 9 through 11. Just as the Father loved me, I have loved you and abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. If you were to go through those those three verses, nine through 11, count how many times love is mentioned. And then you see the result of it. Joy. Joy. I've told you this before. You know the acronym for joy? J-O-Y. Jesus, others, yourself. Joy. When you're in that love relationship with God and you're loving others the way that God has loved you, you have joy within this. And it's a, it's a it's joy that is full. But what robs us of our joy when we get our eyes on ourself? What robs us of our joy is when, when we stop loving others. When we're out of relationship and fellowship with God. In 1 John 3.18, John would write, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Loving others. How do we love others? Figure it out. In every condition, every circumstance, how do you ask the question, God, how do you want me to love this other person? Oh, wait a minute, that's a prayer, isn't it? In this situation, God, how can I show love? And God will show you. That's a prayer. And then you do what God tells you to do, and then He honors. We think about the fruit of, the father, of love in the Father, that He gave His only Son. The fruit of love of the Son, that He gave His life for you. The fruit of the love in the disciples is they turned around and they gave their lives for the Word of God. So that we would have it. Love is a decision. It's an action of obedience. It's what we choose to do. And we choose to do it to honor God. How are people going to know the love of God? You. How are they going to see the love of God? You. You are God's love letter to a dying world. You are the love letter. That God has given to the world. To people that don't know what love is. And when you love others in a manner that God's called you to do, it'll bring you great joy because you're going to be saying, Dad, did you see what I did? And he's going to go, good job. Well done. Consider the joy of Jesus and his journey. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance of the sin which easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. But look at what he says, who for the joy set before him. You say, well, the joy was the throne. Yeah, but he had to go through the cross to get there. He had to lay down his life. Question. Is loving others always easy? Is loving others mostly hard? Sure it is. To truly love somebody means that you have to say no to self. And most of the time it's a sacrifice. Sacrifice. But on the other hand, when you get onto the other side of the serving and the loving, then you have the well done, good, and faithful servant. Jesus continues this conversation as they're moving. By this time, he's probably getting closer, maybe crossing the Kidron Valley, coming down to the other side. In verses uh, 12 to 17, Jesus says this Okay, we know that prayer connects us with God. We know that acting in love is going to bring about joy. Mm, What does love look like? Well, this is my commandment that you love one another. How? Just as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one who lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, there it is, prayer again, he may give to you this commandment. This I command you that you love one another. Okay, so God, I want to I honor you. I want to stay connected. I want to produce fruit. How do I do that? I'm going to pray. How can I be loving to this guy who's a jerk right now? That's a prayer. How am I loving to this guy that's a jerk? God, show me how to be loving towards him. God shows you how to be loving. And he says, love him like I loved you. Oh, really? Yeah. Love him Like I loved you. But he's a jerk. Romans 5 says, While I was yet a sinner, what? Jesus died for me. Guess what? You were a jerk when Jesus loved you. Love him like I loved you. To love one another. It's interesting because it is not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. Hey, you know, it might be a good idea. I have a suggestion for you. No, the tense is present active imperative. It's a command. You have to do this. This commandment I give to you. It's a reiteration of something he already taught him in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you new in type, not in time. That you love one another even as I loved you. That you also love one another and by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What does he say? He says, if you love one another like I love you, everyone will know you're my disciple. Why? Because you are connected to the vine. And the love that flows from the vine through the branches, the fruit of love will be demonstrated by others. And they'll say, yes, you are connected to Jesus. To love one another. Even when they're unlovable, yes. I can tell you this, hugging a porcupine is really difficult. Hug them from a distance. But be loving. He gave this command with a view of the cross. As I loved you. Now keep in mind, John's writing this post-resurrection. It didn't make sense. What do you mean as you've loved us? Well, you, you hung out with us. You fed us. You gave us power. Married, no. As I've loved you. As I'm about to love you. And then the cross makes all the sense in the world. You're trying to get the followers to, to bring all of the commands into one aspect. To love. In Mark 12, 29-32, Jesus says, The foremost is here. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no one else beside him. But the scribe did not go on and say, OK, I'm going to do that. He was OK with the Old Testament concept of God. But he didn't get the new concept of love within this. They're to love like Jesus, verse 13, sacrificially. So where do I get the capacity to love? Where does it come from? Prayer first, right? You can't squeeze out an orange, can you? No, you got to be connected. You can't squeeze out love unless you have the source of love. Which means you've got to pray first. God, give me the ability, the capacity. Well, what am I going to pray? I'm going to pray with a focus. Before I pray, and and God, how are you going to... What am I going to do with this guy? Jesus says, stop and reflect on how you've already been loved. Oh. So from a vertical relationship of connectivity with God then I will have the capacity horizontally to love one another. Reflect on the love that Jesus showed you. The unconditional acceptance. God, you've been so gracious to me and so kind. You forgive me. You hear me. You never turn your back on me. God, you've given me everything that pertains to life and godliness through Jesus. You've given me eternal life. Yeah, I can forgive this other person. Because I want them to know that kind of love. In 1 John 3.16 it says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Commentator C.K. Barrett said this, Eternal divine love reached its complete an unsurpassable expression in the death of Jesus, which is at the same time the death of a man for his friends. No greater love is this than one who lays down his life for his friends. We, We applaud people that live sacrificially, both in the military and the law enforcement, people that give their lives for others. Remember that Jesus gave his life for you. The other aspect is this, is the change of relationship. Jesus died for his friends. He didn't die for slaves. He died for his friends. He says, you're my friends. It's a love relationship for the other. And he's calling the disciples his friends. You are not my workers. We're in relationship. To be able to identify myself as a child of God, to know this. When you say, well, who are the friends? Well, this concept of being a friend of God went all the way back to Abraham. In Isaiah 41.8, eight says this, But you, O Israel, my servant and Jacob, you have chosen descendants of Abraham, my friend. James the brother Jesus quoted the same concept in, in James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. When you live for Christ, you're not a slave. You're in relationship for your friend. Would you die for your friend? If your friend needed a kidney, would you give it to him? Sure. I've, I've offered my kidneys in a number of people. About three of them that I can think of right now. I'm okay with it. God will figure it out. i got an extra one. I'm okay with it. That's love, to be able to, to think about this. Moses was called a friend of God, Exodus thirty three eleven, And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Moses returned to camp in the service of Joshua and the son of Nun. A man wouldn't depart from the tent. He saw this. Jesus saw Lazarus as a friend. And all of these friends are friends of Jesus. Do you realize that you're a friend of Christ? Jesus views you as his friend. The slave is bound under the law of the master. You are no longer bound under the law. Jesus sets you free. In Galatians 4, 7, Therefore you're no longer a slave but a son of God, and a son and heir through God. But Israel rejected the idea of being God's son or being a friend. They broke off the relationship. In fact, in John eight thirty three, they said, We're Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves to anyone. How is it you say we become free? Because they were slaves under the law. What does that mean? It means this. You don't have to love anyone. You get to love everyone. Do you get that? If you view this as a have to, then you're identifying as a slave. But if you view this as a get-to, you're identifying yourself as a child of God. I get to love people. I don't have to love them. I get to. It's a privilege to be able to do this. Moving on to verses 16 and 17. He goes on in, in this conversation. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Can you remember back in the day when you were younger and kids and playing games? And it came time to pick teams, right? What is the worst position to have when it comes time to pick teams? No one wants to be picked last. What is the position that everybody wants? They always want to be picked what? First. Have you ever gone down to the end of the the picking and 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 you know, you got your two team captains and they're picking back and forth, and they're picking back and forth, and it comes down and, and there's only one and it's you, and the captains go, You take him. I had him last time. Is that horrible? Kids are harsh. You were chosen by God. Augustine once said, God chose us not because we believe. God chose us so that we may believe. When did God choose you? Before the foundations of the world. God chose you before the found You mean God chose me knowing what kind of a dirty, rotten sinner I am? Yep. He chose me before the foundations of the world. And God doesn't make mistakes. Well, how could God choose me? If, if God knew my... Oh, wait a minute. He does. If God really uh, yeah, he does. And he still has chosen you and appointed his friends to bear fruit. He has chosen you for a purpose. He hasn't chosen you just because he was pitying you. He was chosen you, He chose you for a plan and a purpose. To fulfill and be part of this. you realize what a blessing it is to be part of a process of someone else's eternity? God chose you. To have an impact on other people and their eternity. As his friend. A co-laborer. Abraham was chosen and blessed by God for a purpose. Why? To be a great nation. Genesis 12. Two to three. And I will make you a great nation and bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you all curse. And all the families of the earth will be blessed. Question. What has God chosen you for? Do you know? I can tell you this. Really simple. To love others. God's chosen you to love others. Now, how you do that, you've got some freedom there. But the end game is to love others and glorify God. And again, prayer is the key. He brings it up again, if you abide in me and you pray anything God, you ask of God, he'll give you. Okay. I'm connected with God. I'm going to love others. God, I pray. I understand my relationship with you. I know I need to love other people and I'm at a loss. How am I going to love them? hey, now I'm going to show you how to love them. Whatever you ask when you say, God, show me how to love them, I will provide it for you. And listen and then do it. You pray like Jesus. You live sacrificially. You give up your life. Jesus would pray in the garden later. What would he pray? Father, not my will, but... How did he get the resource of love that would drive him to the cross? He prayed to his father. He abided in the father's will. Do you get it? It is all that, that power that comes from God. And he commanded his friends to love one another. Verse 17. Verses 18 to chapter sixteen four is the last section of this discussion that he has with them. He says, if the world hates you, so here's the counterpart. If I'm loving, what happens if they reject my love? What happens if they don't want to listen? If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because, note, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world's going to hate you. Now remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And if I had come and spoken to them, they would have have not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And he who hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he'll testify about me. And you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. Now these things I have spoken to you so that you may may be kept from stumbling. And they will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you. That's not very (laughs) encouraging. To think that he is offering a service to God. But these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you. So that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. What is Jesus doing? These last words are preparing them for what's coming. Okay. Abide in me and I in you. Why? Because in that, your life will glorify God. How? Because the love of the Father is going to come through you to other people. And you're going to obey Him. And you're going to have joy because you're going to be in this divine relationship just like Jesus had that divine relationship with the Father. There's going to be great joy in there. How am I going to do that? Through prayer. And through the Word. And constantly being in the state of of awareness of the presence and the power of God through the Holy Spirit as He says. So love God and love others. And demonstrate that, that example. What happens if they reject my love? What happens if I try loving them and they don't want anything to do with that love? Will that happen in the world? Yes. Why? Because they hate you? Nope. Because they hate God. They hate Jesus. If you are divinely connected... And the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and He does. And you are living and loving like Jesus and connected, and that fruit is out there, and that fruit is love, and that fruit is, that spiritual fruit is rejected. Jesus says, don't take it personal. Why? Because they hated me first. Now, if you're a jerk, that's on you. But if you're loving, and you should be, then understand that they're rejecting the love of God. They, and Jesus warns him. he says, you will be hated by the world. Jesus was rejected by his own people, John one eleven. He came to his own and those who were of his own didn't receive him. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that their deeds are evil. What ends up happening? It's a spiritual issue. Hatred is a mark of worldliness. It's not a mark of spirituality. It's a mark of worldliness. And Christians right now are hated immensely. Why? Because they hate Christians? No, they hate God. And the world hates all the followers of God, the followers of Jesus. The Jewish Christians would be persecuted greatly. The disciples would be put to death. Saul would go around persecuting them. This fundamental reason. And Jesus says this, if you were of the world, the world would love you. What is the message of of some of the, uh, the social gospel today? Christians should just get along. Right? Let's not offend anybody. Let's just all get along. Does that mean that we can't call out sin? Yeah, you can't call out sin. Because that might be offensive. Jesus says, no, you call out sin. In fact, they would not have known about sin unless I revealed that they were in sin. Because the first thing you have to do in order to be right with God is you've got to deal with your sin. It is not loving to support sin. It's not loving to condone sin. And, and when we think about it, you know the old saying, that which we accept, we promote. And, and does it mean that you have to be legalistic? No, it means you need to be loving. And love people and say, look, at this lifestyle is offensive to God and it's going to kill you. Spiritually for eternity. Within this. But they hated Jesus. They hated his followers. And they persecute them all. Because they represent the truth. Now granted. Being a Christ follower is not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. But it's necessary. In order for them to understand truth. To be loving. To know that. That that connectiveness with God. is you are bringing that spirit of truth. In a place where there is error. In fact, in 1 John 4, 6, it says, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth or error. How are we going to know? They're going to listen to God's word. If they reject the truth, we know what the playing field is. We know where they're coming from. Why? Because they don't know God. And so we need to reveal Jesus to them. And Jesus' works revealed all of that. And he spoke the truth. He demonstrated the power through miracles. And he promises, verses 26 and 27, that the Holy Spirit would come down and empower you. You say, well, Carrie, well, that means I can do this. Yeah. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is where? In the world. But it's hard. Yeah, it is. Jesus died on the cross. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. All the disciples were martyred. It's hard. These Ethiopian Christians sat on a sand beach in orange turnouts and had their heads chopped off because they wouldn't renounce their faith. It is hard. But if you cave, and if you condone, and if you promote sin, Ultimately, you're not being very loving. Because you're allowing people to die in their condition, not knowing the truth, and the truth that will set you free. Understand, as Jesus ends this, this last warning in verse 16, He says, These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. It is going to be hard. But understand, understand, that God has given us the power to overcome, that we don't stumble in the process, that we don't give up, that we don't quit. That we, as I said Sunday, finish well. That we don't reject what God has given to us. We think about Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 7. He was killed by the Jews, James. Killed by the Jews, Acts 12, 2. Other Christians, killed by the hand of Paul. And then Paul himself came to faith. Why? I often think it's because Paul became keenly aware of what he had done to these other believers. And that would sit with him. We read here in, in John sixteen thirty three: These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. People were at war. We're at war. And it's not war for our social Christianity in the western United States. We're at war against Satan for the souls of people for eternity. We need to get serious. Pray. Be connected. Receive from God direction and love others. It's going to be hard. But that's okay. Because at the end of the day when you're up in heaven you're going to hear well done, good and faithful servant. And you've finished your race well. God, I thank you for this time and I thank you that we can be in this place to hear from you. Lord, I know that you've given us this journey to walk. And it is going to be hard. But let us not be weary in well doing but know that we'll reap if we don't faint as you tell us. May we produce the fruit of love and truth And make it about the other and not about ourselves. Not to accept circumstances and situations, but really to stand firm and fast because we love other people. And when we communicate, may we communicate with the love of Christ. And before we open our mouths, may we pray and hear from you. Lead us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and we close.
1: things of this world. If I rise or fall, if I stand at all, I am leaning on everlasting arms. What a fellowship, what a joy. like dying. More like living for heaven on earth. The more I'm leaning, the more I'm flying. Feels less like dying. More like living for heaven on earth. The more I'm leaning. The more I'm flying. Feels less like dying.
0: us to press into you each day, to lean on you, to trust in you, to help us to love, to help us to stay, uh, do the things that you have called us to do. What We've heard your word tonight. We ask that you would plant the word that we've heard tonight deep in our hearts and may it bear fruit for the kingdom to bless you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.